This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, November 30th, 2023. I'm Caleb Brown. The link tax is an intuitive idea. As print news outlets are failing, charge tech platforms for the privilege of linking to news sites and thus compel those companies to shoulder some of that burden. The problem is it doesn't actually help anyone. Cato's Paul Matsko explains how Canada is now learning the grim lessons of link taxes. We talked about this in in the past in relation to your paper, but uh, just to recap, what is a link tax? Yeah, so link taxes, they're a government-mandated subsidy from big tech to big ink that really can rip at the fabric of the internet. So if if you're a Google or Meta or a big online platform, you're supposed to pay for the privilege of sharing links with searchers, with internet users. That's the idea of the link tax. And there's a complicated mechanism for making sure that money changes hands. What's happened recently is that you might have heard the family-friendly saying, mess around and find out. We'll censor that a little bit for family-friendly version. Family-friendly version. Yes, yes. Canada recently, this summer, decided to mess around with the link tax. And now they're finding out what happens when you do so. And what happens... Let's back up a little bit. The the idea of a link tax is that... Uh, publishers are having problems, those that are rooted in print media, gathering news, reporting news. And so they are in dire financial straits, not just in the United States, not just in Australia, where this idea has become popular, but presumably also in Canada and elsewhere. And I don't think that big tech platforms are going to miss the money. But the effects are predictable. Yeah. Yeah. So ultimately, it's based on a misunderstanding of how exactly the internet has financially hobbled the newspaper industry. They like to blame Google and they get all this ad revenue. Facebook, they, you know, digital ad revenue is a big deal. Obviously, it's the core of both companies' financial structure. And they're taking that from newspapers is the idea. What actually happened, it wasn't Google and Facebook. It was the rise of companies like Craigslist, which stole away classified ad revenue from newspapers, which uh, once uh, Rupert Murdoch described as rivers of gold. It's the basis of the old newspaper model was not display ads, like you know a local clothing store advertising their clothes, dis- display ads. That was a relatively small portion of newspaper revenue in the pre-digital era. Most of it was classified ads, the white pages. And that got taken, that was a, a fat chunky source of revenue for newspapers back in the day, much larger than subscription, display advertising, everything else. So they're blaming Google and Facebook for something that other internet platforms have done. So it's a misdiagnosis. And it's also, it's been a net good for the consumer. You know, it used to be expensive to advertise your used furniture in in the white pages. You had to pay per word, sometimes dollars per word to advertise your old crap. But that's now almost all but free on Craigslist and other online platforms. And so we returned that money to consumers and newspapers lost their biggest source of revenue. So they misdiagnosed the problem. But at the same time, Craigslist doesn't have lots of money. Google and Meta do. And so they want some of that sweet, sweet cash and the link tax as a means of getting at that money. So what has Canada discovered? So Canada has discovered that the internet is built on the ability to frictionlessly and costlessly link between websites. That, that's the World Wide Web. It puts the web in World Wide Web. 
And Canada has discovered that when you make the process of linking, in this case, news articles, that if Google wants its search results to connect users to links for news articles, that if you make that process more costly and more frictionful, that they'll do less of it. Now, in Canada, what happened with the Online News Act is that Meta and Google responded by pulling out of the news business entirely in Canada. It's a full news embargo. In other countries, they they did the same thing in Spain in 2014 in response to what was called a snippet tax, kind of similar to a link tax. They pulled out entirely. In Australia, they did something a little bit different in 2021. They complied, but they end up sharing less news. Again, if you're Google or Meta, news content's only a small fraction of the total results that you're serving up to users. And so it creates an incentive for them to share less news and share more other stuff that's free. You can link to, I don't know, you know, sports or creator content or YouTube or whatever for free. You don't have to pay. It's it's frictionless and costless, right? So the natural incentive is for these news aggregators to share less news. Now, Canada is the extreme version, full news embargo. And the effect for the Canadian market has been dire. Politico, a political reporter, did the Canadian version of a FOIA request and got emails from Canadian news executives to the Justin Trudeau administration. And there's all these dire warnings. Like one CEO said they've seen a 60% reduction in website traffic. Just massive. Another CEO calls it an existential event. They're already laying off journalists. They're worrying about having to shutter their mastheads. It's just been really quite dire. And this makes sense because what Again, it's this that they misdiagnose the problem and then they don't realize that these platforms provide very real value to news websites. It's a costless distribution service, a global costless way of getting their articles in front of people all around the world. And that's worth more to news websites than it is to Google and Facebook. And so they're finding that out. It doesn't seem like, you know, a link tax, sure, not a great idea. But it doesn't seem like there are a lot of good solutions here for particularly smaller local news media that deliver value that is just not available in any other way. And they still can't find a way to capture the revenue for the value that they're delivering. Yeah, that's true. I mean, and this is problematic in that there is, uh, I think we all recognize that losing local newspapers, local news outlets is is bad. It actually removes a tool for transparency for local government, you know, a form of accountability, journalism acting as the fourth estate on the local level. So it is problematic. And I don't think we should just poo-poo the concerns. The problem is, is that the answer lies in innovation. So there are a, a bunch of new kind of novel forms of local journalism that are alternatives to the old traditional model where you have a a local paper that has a print edition, has a central newsroom, has a literal building, puts out print copies. That old model is dying, right? It's not sustainable in the new system, but there are alternatives. So there are growing networks of local newsletters this is probably the easiest example to give where you have someone and some of them are run by former journalists. My favorite example is so one of the journalists at the traditional newspaper, the Charlotte Observer, which is financially struggling under this kind of new internet-based system, left to form the Charlotte Ledger, his own newsletter that focuses 
right in on business events, on politics in the Charlotte area. And he actually is able to make more money as a journalist in this newsletter system than he was as a journalist at a traditional news, newspaper. So it's folks who have local expertise or a depth of experience and knowledge need to transition to alternatives to the traditional newspaper. And that's things like hyper-local newsletters that focus in on particular issues or particular local communities. And that's happening. There's networks of dozens and even hundreds of these rolling out all over the country. And that's where we should be focusing our attention. That's where folks should be focusing their investment. I'm trying to use the government to prop up shambling zombie publications. Paul Matsko is a research fellow at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast anywhere you please. And thank you for listening.